I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I have developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. In today's reading, we continue our chronological trip through the Gospels, and we'll be looking at passages in Matthew chapter 14, Mark chapter 6, and John chapter 6. Here's what we'll see today. We'll see that Jesus is still ministering in Galilee, right around the Sea of Galilee. As a matter of fact, the third Passover's ministry takes place during these passages right here in Jerusalem, which is where the big festivities are held, but Jesus doesn't attend those festivities. These events that we look at today mark the beginning of the last year of the ministry before his crucifixion. In the first passage, we'll be looking at three accounts, Matthew, Mark, and John, on Jesus walking on the water. First of all, let's look at Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 33. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him and to the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went into them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Now from Mark's perspective, in Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 45. And straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship, and to go to the other side, before into Bethsaida, while he sent away the people. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on the land. And he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed by them. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit, and cried out. For they all saw him, and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them, and saith unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid." And he went up unto them into the ship, and the wind ceased, and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure, and wondered. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. And then finally, John chapter 6 and verse 15. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. And when even was now come... His disciples went down into the sea, and entered into a ship, and went over the sea toward Capernaum, 
and it was now dark, and Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship, and they were afraid. But he saith unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. This event follows the feeding of the 5,000 recorded in Matthew chapter 14, verses 14 to 21, Mark 6, verses 33 to 44, and Luke 9, verses 11 to 17, and John 6, verses 1 to 14. On that occasion, Jesus and his disciples had boarded a ship and traveled to a solitary place away from Bethsaida. It was on a mountainside that Jesus and his disciples were approached by the 5,000-plus people for a teaching session. During that time, we're told in John 6, 4, that the third Passover of Jesus' ministry was taking place. Now we find after that instant of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus sending his disciples away, and um, they're headed back toward Capernaum, Bethsaida. There's a map on the page of the written notes of BibleTrack.org for reference. Since they reached Gennesaret in Matthew chapter 14, verse 34, and Mark chapter 6, verse 53, we'll see that in a few moments, they are traveling along the shore from east to west along the um, Sea of Galilee. It's interesting that while Matthew, Mark, and John give the account of the story of Jesus walking on the water, only Matthew tells us about Peter trying to duplicate the feat. The others don't report that. Obviously, that wasn't the big story to John, and also wasn't the big story to Mark. John gives a great bit of detail in the subsequent fallout on the day following this miracle where we see that many of Jesus' disciples, not the twelve apostles, at this point ceased to follow Jesus. Now, in this incident on the sea, they're rowing against the wind. It's about three to three and a half miles out. And they're making little or no progress across the Sea of Galilee toward Capernaum, Bethsaida, when Jesus who'd stayed behind to pray, he walks on by the ship, on the water. Matthew and Mark point out that the disciples thought at first that Jesus was a spirit. The Greek word used in Matthew chapter 14, verse 26, and Mark chapter 6, verse 49 is phantasma. It's used only these two times in the New Testament. After everything they had seen Jesus do, why would a little Jesus walking on water surprise them so? And why would it be easier to believe that they were seeing a ghost rather than Jesus actually walking on the water? Mark makes a noteworthy observation in Mark chapter 6, verse 52, when he says, For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. The term heart was hardened is only meant to convey to the reader, that'd be us, that these disciples were having a little difficulty equating the miracles of Jesus with the reality that they are seeing. As God, he had power over the elements of the universe. Even though they had viewed the reality-defying feat of feeding the 5,000, they were nonetheless amazed at a little bit of walking on the water. That's kind of curious, but those are the facts. Mark seems to find that aspect of the story amusing, while Matthew finds amusing the fact that Peter tries his hand at water walking as well. John gives the account, but makes a point that neither Matthew nor Mark mention when he says in John chapter 6, verse 15, regarding Jesus' initial absence from the ship, the following, When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone.
Only John felt that it was important to show why Jesus initially stayed back after sending the people away. It's because they wanted to make him a king right there and then. Again, I should point out that you only get the full picture when you read all three gospel accounts uh, for this one occasion. Now, in the next section of Scripture, we find a report from Matthew chapter 14, verses 34 to 36, and Mark chapter 6, verses 53 to 56. Only three verses in um, Matthew and four verses in Mark. And it regards many touching Jesus and being made well. First, Matthew chapter 14, verse 34. And when they were gone over, they came into the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out to all that country round about and brought unto him all that were diseased, and besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched were made perfectly whole. Now, Mark chapter 6, verse 53. And when they had passed over, they came into the land of Gennesaret and drew to the shore. And when they were come out of the ship, and straightway they knew him, and ran through that whole region round about, and began to carry about in beds those that were sick, where they heard he was. And whithersoever he entered into villages or cities or country, they laid the sick in the streets and besought him that they might touch, if it were but the border of his garment, and as many as touched him were made whole. Gennesaret is on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, right next to Capernaum. Obviously, he's well received upon his arrival there. The sick people there are brought out into the open where Jesus will pass by. All those who touch the border, the hem of his garment, are healed. These tassels, it's the Hebrew word zitzit, or the Greek word kraspadon, these were part of the garment in keeping with the law of Moses as specified in Numbers chapter 15, verse 38. That verse says, Speak unto the children of Israel, and bid them that they make them fringes. There's that word zizit. Fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations, and that they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue. Observant Jews still today wear these tassels on their four-cornered garments. Another zitzit incident is found in Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 26, Mark 5, 21 to 43, and Luke 8, 40 to 56, all three passages dealing with the same incident. It was believed that touching these tassels on Jesus' garment would result in healing, and on this occasion it did. And the occasion back in Matthew 9, Mark 5, and Luke 8 did as well. All that touched his garment on this day were made perfectly whole. In John chapter 6, verses 22 to 25, we find an incident that's only recorded by John. Verse 22. The day following, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there, save that one whereinto his disciples were entered, and that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone, Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias, nigh unto the place where they did eat bread. After that the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Now, this is John adding a little addendum to the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. 
the people were unaware of that miracle, and they had only seen his disciples get on that single ship, didn't know that Jesus got on that ship. Yet Jesus had somehow ended up with his disciples at their destination. Well, having seen no other ships at the time, the people still wonder, well, how did he do that? And that's what John records in these four verses. Then we have a very controversial discussion about bread. Only John records this one in verses 26 to 59. Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him that hath God the Father sealed. Then say they unto him, What shall we do, that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then, that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven, and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me, and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son, and believeth on him, may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then murmured at him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard, and hath learned of the Father, cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God. He hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness, and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof, and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then said Jesus unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, dwelleth in me, and I in him. 
As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna, and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. This episode takes place in the synagogue at Capernaum. We see that in verse 59. It's near the time of the Passover feast, exactly one year before the crucifixion takes place. Jesus had just miraculously fed 5,000. That was up in Matthew 14, verses 14 to 21, Mark 6, 33 to 44, and Luke 9, 11 to 17, and John 6, verses 1 through 14. The teaching session becomes one of extreme doctrinal significance here. The discussion turns to one of motivation when the people finally find Jesus. He points out to the crowd in verse 26, You seek me, not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. That's an interesting observation Jesus shares with us. Many of these followers were simply prosperity seekers. They weren't interested in Jesus for any of the right reasons. They simply observed that he was able to take two fishes and five loaves and feed 5,000 and with food left over. Incidentally, this prosperity message is still being preached today. Many are following a message of financial wealth and well-being as their primary attraction to Jesus. You'll notice that Jesus clearly established that this is not the proper motivation for following him. Well, how about a sign then, the people ask. You know, I mean, something akin to the manna God dropped from heaven back in the wilderness wanderings. I'm reminded here of Paul's characterization of the Jews in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22, where he says, For the Jews require a sign. Jesus then makes a definitive statement in verse 35 when he says, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Now let that analogy soak in for a minute. It's packed with implications. Well, here's the teaching. The Holy Spirit motivates salvation. God will use this message of salvation, coupled with the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, to draw people to a salvation experience. Well, there it is, per se, in John chapter 6, verse 44, which says, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Well, let's dwell there for just a moment. We are saved when we are drawn by the Holy Spirit to receive Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Titus 3.5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. The Greek word there for renewing means renovation. Lost people need a renovation that can only be done by the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul portrays this new life in Jesus Christ in such radical terms in 2 Corinthians 5.17 when he says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I'd say that's pretty significant as a renovation, wouldn't you? So what's the differentiation here? Well, here it is. Salvation is not merely experiencing an enlightenment or saying some special words out loud. It's not just a determination to do right or a deep emotional experience of remorse. All of those things may accompany salvation, but true salvation happens when God supernaturally, through the power of the Holy Spirit, 
draws a person to commit themselves completely to Jesus Christ as their only means to God and heaven. When that process takes place, it's permanent. It says so right there in verse 35, when it says, shall never hunger. And verse 37, when it says, I will in no wise cast out both statements by Jesus. And then again in verse 39, a third statement where he says, that I should lose nothing. And in verse 40, when he says, have everlasting life. Incidentally, verse 37 includes a double negative. The two-word phrase, ume. That double negative combination adds strength to the adamant guarantee when it says, in no wise cast out. It's the equivalent of our often used slang term, ain't no way. This phrase is actually used 94 times in the New Testament to show very strong negative feelings about an issue. Now here's a very strong, decisive statement to the discussion in John 6:47. Here's what it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. So how long is everlasting anyway? Until you sin? Well, no. Everlasting is everlasting. Salvation is a relationship. It's not just a passing experience. When you trust Christ as your Savior, you enter into a permanent, eternal covenant with God, whereby you are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, according to the stipulations of 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It says, For by one Spirit we are baptized into one body. In other words, you become part of God's family at salvation. Our shortcomings have no bearing on the integrity of that permanent relationship. Now, Jesus is very clear in verses 34 and 35 with his metaphor for eating. He's clearly talking about believing on Jesus as Savior. In other words, bread of life equals everlasting life. Notice Jesus' reference in verse 45 to the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. He there refers to it by saying, It is written in the prophets, And they shall be all taught of God, Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Jesus there refers to the fact that the future kingdom on earth that will be established will see a new covenant established whereby all inhabitants of the earth are saved and living by faith. This concept is in stark contrast to the practice among the Jews in Jesus' day. Then Jesus caps off the discussion in verse 58 when he says, This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna, and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Manna is the supernatural bread that was supplied from God for the 40 years to Israel, beginning in Exodus chapter 16. This picture would later be revisited in the observance of communion itself. The institution of this ordinance is found in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 30, Mark 14, verses 22 to 26, and Luke chapter 22, verses 17 to 20. And that event, the First Communion, followed the last supper Jesus had with his disciples prior to the crucifixion. Paul dealt with communion in its proper context in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26. And finally, in John chapter 6, verses 60 through 71, we get a glimpse and some teaching regarding discipleship. Verse 60, Many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is an hard saying. Who can hear it? 
When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What, and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not, and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you, that no man can come unto me, except it were given unto him of my Father. From that time many of his disciples went back, and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. After this discussion, the one about bread in the earlier passage, some of the seekers who had been following Jesus, they didn't follow him anymore after this. We see it in John chapter 6, verse 66, where it says, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. That statement has no implications regarding salvation whatsoever. It's a simple statement regarding who continued to physically follow Jesus around in his ministry. However, what about the twelve? Well, here's Peter's defining statement in verses 68 and 69. Then Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. However, we should point out that that wasn't the testimony of one man there. Look at verse 70. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? The Greek word for devil there is diabolos, from which we get our English word diabolical. That word is usually translated devil, but it's also sometimes translated accuser or slanderer. Since the definite article is not used here, as in the devil, it's not likely that Jesus was referring to Judas as the devil incarnate, but rather he's identifying that one there, Judas, has motivations that are diabolical. Well, the devil, he'll be pleased about that. Jesus identifies that one of them is there with evil motivations. Of course, that's talking about Judas. This puts to rest the notion that Judas fell out of a relationship with Jesus or somehow lost his salvation. Jesus clearly identifies that Judas was chosen as a disciple for a specific purpose, but was evil from the very, very beginning. Let me make a point that I've made several times before. Here it is. Salvation and discipleship are two different relationships. Would you not agree that verse 70 tells us that while Judas was a disciple, he was not saved? Well, let's not stop with Judas. Are, are there not a host of people in our world today who subscribe to the notion of emulating the life of Jesus, but have not trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior? There are entire religions and denominations based upon this flawed principle. Therefore, let me say it one more time. Salvation and discipleship are two different relationships. The victorious believer has both. Now, if you'd like to see 
more on the relationship between salvation and discipleship, read my notes on Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 27. There you'll also see two other passages covered in the same notes, Mark 8, 34 to 38, and Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 26. Let me sum that up. You can be a disciple and not be saved. But also, you can be saved, have that relationship, that permanent relationship of being in God's family, and not be a disciple, in other words, actively pursuing a victorious Christian life. So, to top it off, I'll say it one more time. Salvation and discipleship are two different relationships. The scripture says so. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.